morning, Rogers Park. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is uh, Phil Adams. I get to serve over in West Rogers Park as one of the pastors there with uh, Shine Gidla and the crew. And I get to um, bring the word to you this morning. It is my joy. I hope um, if you're here and this is your first time, I hope you already feel welcome. Um, and it is my prayer that this morning you do business with God, that you meet him, that he meets you uh, through the power of his word this morning. So let's go. Are we ready? What was that? Are we ready? <laughs> okay. We're currently, as a reminder, we're currently working through the book of Romans, as you've seen on the screen on the, in the intro there. It's a letter in the New Testament written about 2,000 years ago by a man called the Apostle Paul to the churches in Rome and the churches in homes. And as we're working through this book, we are following a train of thought. We're following an argument that rolls over from chapter to chapter. We're thinking uh, the thoughts of the Apostle Paul after him. We're trying to get inside his mind to think about what he's thinking about. And maybe, maybe you've done this in, in school with something, somebody like Shakespeare or some of the other uh, great thinkers in the world. Maybe you do it on Twitter regularly um, with people who commentate about culture. Because we are thought followers. We follow people's thoughts. We follow people's ideas. So this morning we are going to follow the thoughts of Paul. But the incredible thing about reading the Apostle Paul is that, yes, we are reading his thoughts, but we are at the same time reading the divinely inspired revelation of the thoughts of God. Through the mind of Paul, God is revealing his mind. Through the words of Paul, God is revealing his word. In reading scripture... This morning, in reading the Apostle Paul, we are entering the thoughts that have been sparked at the meeting point between heaven and earth. And so there is weight to Paul's words. They are weightier than Shakespeare or anything that you might read on Twitter. Paul's words drop and explode outwards, revealing for us that there is a foundation on which this world sits on which our lives sit. There's a reality that deeper that we can see. And the reason that we preach, the reason that Jason preaches, the reason that Jamie preaches, the reason that Ed preaches this morning over in Breakers, the reason that Shine preaches in West Rogers Park, the reason that Scott and James preach in North Rogers Park, the reason that Kanye West is becoming a pop-up church planter, are we seeing that? The reason, <laughs> the reason that we preach is that the culturally accepted story of the world is ringing too small for our lived experiences. We live in a world that has been shrunk too small and so small. Transcendence has been rejected. The supernatural has been rejected. And our questions have stopped being answered. As Bradley Cooper, as Lady Gaga... They do link. As Lady Gaga sings to Bradley Cooper, tell me something, boy. Are you tired trying to live in this void? Or do you need more? Is there something else that you're searching for? We preach to give an answer to your worth. We preach to give an answer to your guilt. We preach to give an answer for your void and your longing. We preach to give an answer for your existence. 
in the text this morning, there is a truth that is dropped, that hits the floor and explodes outwards, revealing to us a foundation on which this world sits. Paul isn't revealing this truth to his original readers for the very first time, but he is clarifying something and he drops it like a ton of bricks at their feet to wake them up. Paul literally lures his readers into a false sense of security this morning. He gets them relaxed, warm and fuzzy with a cup of hot cocoa and then he electrocutes them. (laughs) This morning's text is an ice bucket challenge without consent. (laughs) Let's read. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 16. As a disclosure, I'm really going to be focusing on on verses 1 to 11. I think Jan and I will end up overlapping a little bit with 12 to 16. He'll be up here next week. But I'm going to read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. Let me read. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking... And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who are justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts excuse or even excuse on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we come expectant, God, because you reveal yourself through your word, God. So speak into your hearts. God, there are desires that are in my heart this morning, desires that are not of you. God, desires to do a good job, desires for fame, desire for glory. But God, there are desires in my heart that are to honor you. God desires to glorify you, to love you with all of my heart, my mind, and my strength. And I desire today, God, that as I proclaim your word, that I proclaim it for the sake of your kingdom. So God, would your word pierce into people's hearts today. Everything that is of me and me and myself, God, may it shrivel and die away. And may you be glorified. May you be lifted high today. In Jesus' name, amen.
What's key for our understanding of what Paul is thinking in these verses is knowing the context of the churches in Rome to which Paul is, is writing. So as a quick reminder, in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we read that there is an emperor called Claudius, and he orders all Jews to leave Rome, which would have included all those culturally Jewish followers of Jesus. They were to leave, leave the city, go. But now there is a new emperor in town by the name of Nero. He came to rule at only about 17 years old, and he forgot about Claudius' decree. So Jewish Christians began seeping and coming back into the city and back into Rome. They are turning up at church again. We back. But things, they, they weren't so much the same anymore. Some new folks had moved into the neighborhood. Some more languages were being spoken. Some more cultures were being represented. But mainly, some, there was some new leadership. And having their way were these new leaders in the church. And these new leaders of the church, they were Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles were, they are, everyone that the Jewish Christians would have called they. The other, the not us, the not me, the different. The Gentiles would have been everyone in the church that didn't come from Jewish culture or a Jewish lineage. The Gentiles for Jews referred to rest of the world. And we see in verses 12 to 16... One of the problems between the Jews and the Gentiles is that the Jews came from this religious heritage of the Old Testament and God, the God of the universe, had revealed to them his law. So they felt elevated above rest of the world. And actually Jesus is going to maybe look at this a little bit next week, thinking about the law. But what Paul points out is that what matters is not that you have the law, but that you do it. Verse 13, it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. Over the past two weeks, if you've been here, we have looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And although what we can learn about what we've read there, we can learn about God and sin and idolatry in those verses. And we, although it applies to everyone, Paul is primarily writing about Gentiles in those verses from the Jewish perspective. Here are some of the words for these Gentiles found in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 31. Ungodly, unrighteous, foolish, futile, debased, faithless, heartless, evil. And here's what's interesting about those verses in chapter 1. The Greek word for they or them shows up 14 times in 14 verses. They are ungodly, they are unrighteous, they are futile, they are debased, they are heartless, they are ruthless, they are evil. They. What we find in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 is a standard Jewish stereotype of the godless, lawless, idolatrous Gentile. So we ask, why did Paul, the apostle Paul, the self-proclaimed chief of sinners, write they 14 times in 14 verses. Why didn't he say we? Why did Paul call out they, 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 them 14 times? Because Paul wasn't simply doing some straight-up teaching on the theology of sin, although there is much that we learn there. Paul was also using a literary device to make his Jewish audience comfortable. 
He was allowing the newly returned Jewish believers to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show as he painted a picture of sin through the common Gentile stereotype. And remember, they are all part of one church, a network of home churches, house churches, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, were both hearing Paul's letter read out loud. Wow, Paul, you're, you're really giving it to them. <laughs> it's a little harsh, Paul. True, but harsh. <laughs> Paul, they're sitting right there. <laughs> For us, we might enjoy watching the, the Daily Show mock Trump supporters, the deplorables. We might enjoy hearing statistics on repeat about the white stereotype, the privileged. In our text, the Jews loved hearing about the Gentiles, the sinners. And then... After 14 verses of they's, they, 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 Paul turns around in verse 1 of chapter 2, which we've read, and for the first time he turns around and he says, you. Therefore, you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. Sometimes the word of God just speaks for itself. It doesn't say that they are guilty of thinking the very same things. It doesn't say they are guilty of dabbling in the very same things. It says you are guilty of practicing the very same things that are in Romans 1, verse 24 to 32. So we get this bizarre situation where one group of people are judging and looking down on another group in the church, while if we were to look at all of our lives, we would find the exact same things. So the question is, how does this come about? How do we nitpick in another person's life while struggling with the very same thing? How do I have the audacity of calling out others while falling in the same sin myself? Where do we get the confidence to think that we can look down on people when we see pride or we see greed or we see struggle or we see stupidity as if the other is any different to myself? Why don't we cringe at our hypocrisy? What trick do we play? Here's a clue. Facebook admitted in 2017 that worldwide, 60 million Facebook accounts are based on invented identities. That's not 60 million people editing their photos, that's 60 million people living double lives. Being something online that they are not in real life. And what spurs this on? To be something that you're not. Christopher Lash, in his book, The Culture of Narcissism, brings out the idea that it has become routine to assume that the rewards of life are public and that our lives can be measured by how we are seen rather than what we actually do. How do we nitpick in another's life while we struggle with the very same thing? How do we have the audacity to call out somebody else when we're falling in the same sin ourselves? How do we do it? How do I do it? We cover ourselves. We clothe ourselves with an identity that even tricks us into thinking that we are better than we are. 
we cover ourselves with an identity that even hides us from us so that our hypocrisy we can't even see anymore. South RP, our sin runs deep. We live with an invented identity with our sin blocked from view. It's hidden behind our style, it's hidden behind our smiles and our confidence and our smooth talking, it's hidden behind our great ideas and our sense of control, it's hidden behind our money and our civility and our class, it's hidden behind our just enough transparency. Rogers Park, we are experts at self-presentation. Because the air we breathe says our lives can be measured by how we are seen. So as long as we look good, we think we are better than we are. And if we think we are better than we are, we think we are better than others. We cover ourselves with an identity that even hides us from us. So our hypocrisy we can't even see anymore. And this is where Paul drops a ton of bricks at their feet to wake them up. In verses 3 and verses 4, Paul asks two questions. He says, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience and forbearance? Paul's asking two questions, which we're going to look at them in a minute. And he's doing this to make them stop and think, but what should really make them sit up is simply the subject that Paul is bringing up. Because Paul transitions from thinking about us as the judge of others just to God being the judge of us. He brings up a truth that is a foundation on which the world sits. That one day, everyone will stand before God. That one day, everyone will stand before God. Sometimes when we think about Jesus, we can quickly call to mind all of the beautiful things that Jesus said about loving our neighbors and letting the little children come to him. Or verses like Matthew 6, 34, where, where Jesus says the famous words, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is today for its own trouble. Usually we stop there and we don't go to the very next verse where Jesus says this, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. It's the words of Jesus found in the Gospels that play a key part in solidifying our understanding of Judgment Day. It's an idea that has been embellished in the arts and the media. Judgment Day sounds more like a movie with Sylvester Stallone that we may or may not watch than it does a day that we will all experience. Matthew 25, 32, Jesus says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Acts 17, 31, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Something we have to remember in reading our Bibles, or a particular text, is that we should always look to ask the questions that the Bible is intending to answer. 
If we too quickly ask all the questions that come to mind, we can end up skipping around the Bible, looking answers that we may that may or not may not be there. So it's wiser on a consistent basis to build our understanding of Scripture through the feeling the weight of each text and the big idea that each text is speaking about. And that's why at Park we work through books of the Bible to allow the Bible to dictate what we preach and to allow the Bible to reveal the questions God has chosen to answer. Let me say this in relation to the cosmic day of justice. I said at the beginning that we live in a world that is too small for our lived experiences. And when I say this world has become too small, I mean that we live in a society, society that has been shrunk by deciding to rule out any answers to what we experience that would speak to the existence of the spiritual realm. In Western, enlightened thinking, the supernatural is automatically not the answer to any question. Let me give you an example. It's maybe an obscure example, but a good example. There's an article in the BBC News website called The Mystery of Screaming Girls in Malaysia. Let me read this article. It was a quiet Friday morning last July when pandemonium broke out at a school in northeast Malaysia. City, a 17-year-old student, was at the center of the chaos. And this is her account of what happened. The assembly bells rang. I was at my desk feeling sleepy when I felt a hand sharp tap on my shoulder. I turned around to see who it was and the room went dark. Fear overtook me. I felt a sharp, splitting pain in my back and my head started spinning and I fell to the floor. Before I knew it, I was looking into the other world. Scenes of blood, gore and violence. The scariest thing I saw was a face of pure evil. It was haunting me. I couldn't escape. I opened my mouth and I tried to scream, but no sound came out. And then I passed out. The article goes on. City's outburst triggered a powerful chain reaction that ripped through the school. Within minutes, students in other classrooms started screaming, their frantic cries ricocheting through the halls. One girl fainted after claiming to have seen the same dark figure. Classroom doors slammed shut in Katara National Secondary School in Kelaton. As panicked teachers and students barricaded themselves in, spiritual healers were called to perform mass prayer sessions. By the end of the day, 39 people were deemed to have been affected by demonic possession or mass hysteria. The article goes on. The mechanisms behind mass hysteria are often poorly understood and it is not listed in the Manual of Mental Disorders. The symptoms experienced are real, fainting, palpitations, headaches, nausea, shaking, and even fits, he says. It's often attributed to a medical, a medical condition, but for which no conventional biomedical explanation can be found. The article goes on. In early 2016, mass hysteria took hold across many schools in the exact same state. Officials could not handle a multiple outbreaks and shut all the schools said a local reporter. Then a cameraman remembers this time in April. It was spreading from one school to another. And then towards the very end of the article, they speak of one old lady, one lady working at a food stall outside the school, it says, was preparing food on that July morning when she heard the screams. The cries were deafening. The elderly vendor says that she was serving up grilled mackerel and yellow curry and steaming glutinous rice 
She saw at least nine girls being carried out of their classrooms, kicking and screaming. She recognized some of them as regulars at her stall. It was a heartbreaking sight, she says. Later, she saw a witch doctor enter into a small prayer room with his assistants. They were in there for hours, she recalled. I pity the children for what they must have seen that day. What is fascinating with that article on the BBC News website is the collision of two worldviews. One of the local people speaking about prayer and witch doctors and the other world, and then the enlightened Western mindset that immediately dismisses the spiritual world and attributes it all to a medical condition, but for which there is no conventional biomedical explanation that can be found. The article ends, It's hard to determine what really happened that day at Pankalang Chapatu. But officials wasted no time in tackling what they believed to be the source of the problem. City, the girls, she said, we watched from our classrooms as workers came with electric saws to cut down the trees. City seat says, what happened that day was not an outbreak of mass hysteria, she says, it was a supernatural event. Witch doctors were brought in to perform exorcisms that affected 30 girls. Their role was to mediate between the living and the dead. Then the BBC's closing remarks are, but it's important for society today to look to logical explanations. Here's the thing when we look back at our text this morning. What if the most logical thing when we see a world full of people in every culture that are deeply convicted of right and wrong when we see mass protests on our television and on the streets, people fighting for injustices, people fighting for justice in every corner of the globe, when we feel a moral compass in our minds that is universally coordinated between every person, what if the most logical thing is not to look for a biomedical explanation? What if the most logical answer for our conscience and our lived experience is that there is an authority who designed us to know good and evil? What if logic leads us to God? To believe in right and wrong, to believe in justice, to believe there is an authority who says what is right and what is wrong. And judgment day is the meaning of that authority. So when Paul asks the two questions in verses 3 and verses 4, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and patience and forbearance? Paul's just asking his readers, what's your plan? When you stand before God, what's your plan? Do you think you'll escape and, or not have to show up? Or are you just hoping in the fact you know God is kind? What's the plan? John Piper, a well-known pastor, says these words, which have been rattling through my mind in preparing this. He says, now to be sure there are better reasons to come to God than fear. But if fear is the only thing that will shake a person loose from his bondage to sin and cause him to consider Christ, then for love's sake, so be it. What's the plan? Paul goes on in verse 5 with a heavy, heavy verse. He says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. 
Paul here is, he's really answering the two questions that he's asked before. If you do think you'll be able to avoid or escape facing God on that day, you won't. And if you're trusting vaguely in God's kindness, it is God's wrath you will find. One of the complicated things about this passage that I'm walking through today is that Paul is writing to the church. This has been written for the church. He's sending it around the churches to be read out to churches. So we, we ask, are the readers not Christians? Are the readers not saved through faith in Christ? Are they not trusting through faith in God's free gift of grace that Jesus bore the wrath of God on their behalf? Why is Paul writing like this to the church? I believe Paul is writing to the church for two reasons. One, he's teaching them. We are following an argument that will continue through chapters to come. Paul is teaching about sin. He's teaching about judgment. He's teaching about salvation and the gospel throughout the book of Romans. But secondly, I believe he is writing this to certain people in the churches in Rome to wake them up. To wake me up. My conviction is that Paul is extrapolating out for the church his assumption that if we see the sins of others more clearly than we see our own sin, we must not understand the gospel. And so Paul can say in verse 5, all your judging of others is so antithetical to the posture of a follower of Jesus. All your nitpicking and fault finding is so incompatible with someone who has recognized their need of Jesus that I am just going to make the assumption that you are still storing up wrath for yourself when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God refuses to teach the church like they are, Paul refuses to teach the church like they are Christians when they aren't acting like Christians. So that we might wake up and see our error. In verses 6 to 11, it's a chunky little section there. There's one big kind of key idea that Paul wants to bring out, and I'll, and I'll finish here. I'll close very shortly. Verse 6 to 11 starts with the words, God will render to each one according to his works. And then he ends the statement with another, the same statement. So verses 6 and verses 11 are basically saying the same thing. God will render to each one according to his works. And then verse 11, for God shows no partiality, meaning God will treat everyone equally. Then sandwiched in between, we see what equal treatment looks like. Verse 7, to those who practice patience and well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. Then in verse 11 is, this, is the same, glory and honor and peace will be for everyone who does good. And then the opposite is also true. Verse 8, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey truth and obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And verse 9 is the same. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Right now, it's, it's possible to live with an invented identity. Right now, we can be measured by how we are seen. This text that I had to work through this morning. Oh. Wow. I'm going to retell that story of that article. Okay. 
<laughs> the text that I had to work through is telling us that a day is coming when God is going to blow off the dust from our covers. All of our style and confidence and smooth talking. Great ideas and sense of control, all of our money and class and self-presentation. God will blow off with one breath. He will blow off everything that we seek to find favor in. And we will be left not with how we are seen, but what, with what we have done. Verses 6 to 11 show us we will be found holding good or evil. It won't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, black, brown or privileged, white. And the only hope that we all have for that day is to throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. Being found in Christ, being clothed in his goodness is the only cover that won't on that day blow off like dust. He says, will you be on that day holding good or evil? And yet the whole assumption of the text in Romans chapter 1 means that we should not be asking the question, will we be holding good or evil? The whole assumption of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that we're sinners holding evil. And so when we get to the end, we know that the only hope for that day is to throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. To be found in Christ, to be clothed in his goodness. And it's the only cover that won't blow off. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we acknowledge, God, that truth sometimes is hard. And yet, God, we are so grateful, God, that we have truth. God, that we know the story that we're in. God, that we don't have to wonder about who we are and why we exist. We don't have to wonder about what will happen after we die. God, you have revealed it here, God. One day we will stand before you. And yet, God, we praise you, God, that you have made a way that we might know you through Jesus, God, that we might receive your mercy, that we might be clothed in his righteousness for that day. God, may we avail of it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to come now to a time of communion. We get to look a little bit again at verse 4, very briefly. Verse 4 of Romans chapter 2 says this, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Then it says, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. The kindness of God is real. The mercy of God is real. God's patience in our lives is real. God made a way for you and for me that should lead us to repentance. And repentance this morning is the simple act of saying what is true of others is true of me. Repentance is the cure to your critical and judging spirit. What's true of them is true of me. To say I choose to turn away from my sin to Christ where we will find forgiveness and we will find mercy.